thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo and Dr. Callie Holt. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's Back Chat will line best with the pillar of thinking. Tell me today, as always, for health podcasts. It's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow Carpenter co-host, Dr. Kelly Holt. Hey, Kelly, how are you going? Yeah, great. Thanks, Paul. Excellent to hear. Good to be here today. I've been travelling a bit recently, so it's been uh, good to be home to my own bed at the moment. Right. Okay. So you, uh, I think I saw you recently in Melbourne. Where else have you been? I had another trip to Melbourne a couple of weeks before that and Washington a, tri- uh, a week before that. So been all over the show. Right. So has your wife recognised you now or is she just trying to think, who is this guy and he's coming through the hallways at night? What's the story there? She's sort of recognised uh, you again? I, I, I think she knows who I am. That's good news. <laughs> Now, Kelly, who have we got today? What's happening? We've got a very good friend of mine today, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. He's been uh, teaching with us at the New Zealand College for a while. And uh, Bruce is actually a cellular biologist. But, um, you know, Bruce, you're, you're at a chiropractic college. What's up with that? I find it the um, coming out of conventional allopathic teaching where I was that uh, my destination is chiropractic because the science uh, described in the philosophy of chiropractic is more valid than the science uh, being used in allopathic schools. So uh, I'm in the right place at the right time. Well, we always love having you here anyway. So good to, good to have you around, Bruce. Fantastic. I love being here with this community. Excellent. Let me introduce, give some background to Bruce. So Dr. Lipton, Lipton in the 60s completed his science degree major in biology and then went and completed his PhD at the University of Virginia in developmental cell biology. He's a principal author of three books and a contributing author of another eight books, and he's been published in many peer-reviewed journal, journals. In the late 80s and early 90s, Bruce was a research scientist at the School of Medicine at Stanford University. And in the last decade, as Kelly alluded to, he's been the visiting faculty at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. So, well, I suppose one of the, one of the key areas to ask Bruce is about epigenetics and, and how does it differ to genetics? Because a lot of our lay audience probably understand genetics to be our genome and, you know, what people think we become. But can you tell us a bit about epigenetics for LA and some back chat and what that means and the difference to genetics? Well, epigenetics is a, a revolution in science that's so profound it's actually uh, a scientific finding that's going to change civilization. That's how profound it is. Uh, before what the uh, science called epigenetics was around, uh, we were dealing with a science called genetics. I said, well, what does that mean? It means, well that uh, genes uh, apparently control the traits and characteristics of our lives, not just our physical lives, but genes are associated with our emotional and behavioral lives. So in the science uh, of genetics, we talk about something called genetic determinism. Is what That's actually what I was teaching in medical school. And genetic determinism simply means genes determine the character of your life. And that's based on the belief that genes turn on and off and regulate us. And I say, well, what's the relevance of that thinking uh, and I tell, I tell people, I go, look, as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes that we came with. Uh, if we don't like the traits we have, we can't change the genes, and we don't control the genes. So the understanding that comes from this uh, 
genetic determinism is genes control our lives. We don't control the genes. Well, that makes us victims, victims of our heredity, meaning we have no control over our lives. So cancer is running in your family. You can anticipate that or cardiovascular disease, that there's genes and you're going to get that. Uh, and that disempowers people. And that's why uh, science is so strong in that sense is you, you tell people, oh, look, you have no power or control over the physical behavior and emotional characteristics. Therefore, uh, y you are powerless, you are a victim. Uh, and then allopathic medicine, but more specifically, the pharmaceutical industry steps in and says, we're your rescuers. We'll help you out because uh, we can provide those uh, chemical signals to control your genes. So uh, the conventional belief, which is still whole of this conventional belief is still held by the public, is that genes control their lives. But the science changed. The science reveals now uh, that genes are controlled by the environment and specifically our perception of the environment. And so this new science is called epigenetics. And I say, well, it sounds the same, except the epi. And I say, yeah, but epi is the revolution because epi means above. So simply, old science, genetic control means control by genes. The new science, epigenetic control, means control above the genes. Epi means above. So like skin, integument is called epidermis yep. because the skin is above the dermis. So epigenetics means above the genes. And that um, control above the genes is the environment and our perception of the environment. I say, well, why is that relevant? Well, we're the ones that can change the environment and we're the ones that can change our perception. And since those are the things that control the genes, then we're not victims of our genetics. We're actually masters of our genetics. Uh, and that takes us from victim to mastery. And yet the public is still perceiving themselves as powerless victims. And this is why this new science is so important for the public. I think we all kind of like to have a little bit of control over our own lives, don't we, Bruce? So, uh, <laughs> sounds like a good idea to me to uh, you know, this epigenetics thing. Yeah, well, it basically is a, is a great idea because it also so profoundly fits into the nature of chiropractic, that the system is intelligent, self-healing, can take care of itself, uh, and we just have to get out of the way. And not knowing that we were even involved before because we looked at ourselves as passive victims of the genetic expression now it turns out no we are involved with it and if you didn't know you were involved with it that that means you don't really know uh that your behaviors your characteristics are influencing your genetics in a positive or negative way because they do influence your genetics and if you ignore it then being blind to that means that um, you could be uh driving your train right off the track uh without being aware that you're involved with the control yeah, well, you mentioned behavior being involved with it there. I've heard you talk about behavioral epigenetics before. You know, what do you mean when, when you use that term? Well, behavioral epigenetics means that how we, how we respond to the world around us, how you know, the stimuli that come in and how we respond to that stimuli, that's our behavior. Well, the response to the stimuli is what controls the genetics. So it depends on how you respond to a stimulus. So are you responding to it in a positive or a negative way? That makes a difference on the genetic expression. So all of a sudden it says your attitudes and the way you perceive the world is the most important factor affecting genetic expression. Wow, that's interesting. And, you know, if we go back to when you were teaching uh, at Stanford University, if you were back at the faculty there, would they be talking epigenetics nowadays or is it something which still medicine doesn't really recognize in their theories or where does it all sit with epigenetics in even conventional medical teachings nowadays? 
or do you know? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the fact is that uh, I got into the science of epigenetics and uh, I was uh, doing research on epigenetics in 1967. Wow. Uh, the science of epigenetics wasn't even formalized until 1990. So my research was like 23 years ahead of, uh, of the conventional scientific field. When I first started at Stanford, uh, the laboratory that I was working in uh, was not involved with epigenetics. They were involved with conventional uh, genetics, and it was controlling uh, uh, different uh, natures of uh, blood vessel control uh, and pathologies with blood. Uh, and they were just using conventional genetics. And when I came in, the, I remember they used to go like, a, you know, like, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo, like new, you know, weird guy is coming in here, you know, Twilight Zone man. And after my five years, when I left the laboratory, the whole direction of research in that lab switched from their previous, more conventional view to the new science of epigenetics because they were completely blown away when the research I was carrying out there revealed that, in fact, it was environment that was controlling the genes. Uh, let's just clear up a very simple point, because most people in the world have a belief. They talk about genes turning on and genes turning off as if genes make decisions. Well, this is a completely false understanding. Genes do not have an ability to activate themselves. So uh, this is why the epigenetics becomes important, because the switching of genes is not controlled by the genes but it's controlled by how the cell or the individual is responding to the environment. Uh, and then all of a sudden it places emphasis on how are you dealing with the environment? And, and that uh, gives power to the person because that's something we can affect. If we take this, you know, this, this sorry, I was just, if we take this discussion to patients that we see every day and the stresses they experience every day, uh, you know, it's probably the most common entity that all patients experience stress, which, and not talking about good stress, but more distress, I suppose. How does that relate to epigenetics and behavior? Is there a, is there a connection between stress, epigenetics, behavior? Can you put that together in a, in a nice loop for us, please, Bruce, for our patients that are listening to this, many of which are possibly under a lot of stress at the moment? Oh, absolutely. It turns out that stress, uh, uh, conventional science has recognized that stress is responsible for up to 90% of doctor office visits. So it is uh, one of the major contributors. In fact, uh, cardiovascular disease is totally 90% plus uh, lifestyle environment. Uh, uh, we recognize diabetes type 2 is 100% lifestyle and environment. And cancer is now recognized again. Uh, only 10% of cancer is connected to heredity. 90% of cancer, again, is lifestyle environment. So uh, we're moving in this direction of, move, you know, recognizing that we are powerful in influencing our lives, but if people have no awareness of this power, uh, there's an old saying people are familiar with, knowledge is power. But I, uh, let me say it in a different way that's more relevant, and that is a lack of knowledge is a lack of power. Not having knowledge of epigenetics is disempowering to the patient because it leaves them in a position of being a victim. When they understand epigenetics, then it means, oh, I can change my genetic activity. So uh, th this becomes a really important aspect to that. So uh, science is now moving in that direction. Unfortunately, uh, there's a, a drawback here to the uh, financial end of uh, health, <laughs> and that is the pharmaceutical industry depends on selling pharmaceutical drugs. 
uh, and now it turns out instead of drugs, consciousness uh, and how you respond to the world uh, can replace those drugs. Uh, you you can engage the self-healing capabilities of the body if you recognize you have self-healing capabilities. But if you perceive yourself as a victim, then your nervous system will not positively impact your biology. It will just proceed as you're a victim and then you become one. Hey, Kelly, isn't it interesting regards our understanding with stress? And, and you know, often when we were taught at college, uh, university or college, uh, we'd hear stress and we'd say, well, there's genes that cause it and then there's the environment. But, you know, the genes, we just can't change it, so let's move on quickly. Do you remember, do you remember those sort of teachings, Kelly, when you went through and even heard, you know, regards it? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was at university, we, we were just getting into, um, you know, looking at DNA and genes. This was back in the early 90s. And, you know, the, the genes were supposed to be the be-all and end-all, weren't they? And it was going to be the saviour of healthcare. Um, and so it was really quite sort of revolutionary thinking when I first heard Bruce talking because it's coming from such a different model, isn't it? Yes. And it's your behavior, it's your approach, your positive mental attitude um, you know, has an impact on your health more so than the genes themselves, doesn't it, Bruce? Right. You know, and to, to really focus on the question of stress, which I apparently avoided answering in the last part, uh, come back to it. And it comes out to this. It's like what my research revealed is that cells – the genetics of the cells are intimately connected to the environment in which they live. The environment in which they live uh, uh, is blood because blood is the culture medium of the body. And when you change the chemistry of the culture medium, be it in a plastic culture dish or in, in your physical body, uh, when the culture medium in your body is the blood. When you change the chemistry of the culture medium, that's what my research was focusing on, it changes the fate of the cells. So whatever chemistry is in the blood, affects the genetics. Then I talk about, well, what about stress? I go, oh, that's when chemistry, uh, such as stress hormones and inflammatory agents are released by the brain into the, to the nervous system and into the blood. I go, why is that relevant? Because those environmental signals that are coming from the blood and from the nervous system are the factors that cross the cell membrane and then elicit gene action. And that the stress hormones uh, things like cortisol, inflammatory agents such as like histamine, uh, these agents uh, shut down the growth of the cell. And you say, well, why would they do that? And the answer is this. Cells in my research uh, can be in either of two states, but they're mutually exclusive. You can be in this state or you can be in this state, but you can't be in both. The two states are growth and protection. And the difference is here, uh, if there's a stimulus in the environment that gives me growth, uh, then I move to that stimulus and assimilate it. And that's what growth is. Move to the stimulus, take it in. But if there's a threatening uh, uh, environment uh, and there's signals in the environment that are threatening, well, you don't move to the signal, you move away from the signal and you close yourself down. That's protection. So the point is this, growth is moving to the stimulus being open. Protection is moving away from the stimulus and closing down. And I say, well, what's relevant? I said, you cannot be in growth and in protection at the very same time. One, one moves forwards, one moves backwards. One is open, one is closed. You can't be open and closed or move forwards and back at the same time. So I say, why is it relevant? And the answer becomes very simple. It says, no matter what age we are, we have to grow every day. And I say, I don't care how old you could be, 100 years old, you got to grow every day. For the reason is this, the body is made out of 50 trillion cells. Yet every day, normal attrition, normal aging, hundreds of 
billions of cells die every day, natural. Skin cells are sloughed off. The, the entire lining of the digestive tract is replaced every three days. We're talking hundreds of billions of cells every day for a normal person are being lost. And I say, yeah, but how many days in a row can you go without replacing those cells? I say, after a short period of time, you're going to pay a physiological consequence of not repairing those cells. So I say, so you need to stay in growth. I go, yeah, but when you're in stress, the hormones that are released into the body are hormones that shut down the growth. And the relevance is when you're in stress over a period of time, that's like chronic, that is a, an interference with maintenance of your biology. And also the stress hormones shut down the immune system. You say, I mean, let's, let's explain why. Uh, why should the system shut down growth and shut down the immune system under stress? And the answer is, because stress reflects that there's an outside uh, element, an outside something that is threatening you. And that gets you ready for fight or flight. Remember, fight or flight is uh, when, when your stress hormones are in the system, it gets you ready to either run away or, or fight to protect yourself. And I go, those uh, that running away and that fighting requires a tremendous quantity of energy. And so the body, in, a, in, in perceiving stress, says, oh, my God, I better get all my energy together so I could run or fight. And so what the body will do is shut down any energy-using system at that moment to conserve energy for running or fighting. But that means, like, growth uh, uh, or immune system are not necessary to, to be involved with fight or flight. And so when stress hormones are released in the body, they stop the growth of the cells to conserve energy, and they shut down the immune system again to conserve energy. Uh, and very simply, just think about it this way, when a person's sick and the immune system's engaged, they have so much energy usage to, to cover that that many people don't even get out of bed. They're so tired. So the idea, immune system uses a high quantity of energy. Uh, growth uses a high quantity mm -hmm. of energy. And if you're trying to protect yourself, you want all the energy and stress hormones to conserve that energy and get it ready for fight or flight, shut down the growth, shut down the immune system. And if this is over a chronic period of time, over a period of time, relentless, uh, then that means you will uh, actually suffer all the consequences of a dis-ease. Uh, and that's why 90% of doctor visits today are recognized to be totally due to stress because people are compromising their ability to grow and compromising their immune system as a result of stress hormones being released into the environment of the cells and the stress hormones redirecting the genetic activity of those cells toward protection. So, I mean, a lot of us obviously live in a stressful environment. You know, this morning I had to go and take some friends out to the airport. I was stuck in traffic. I was racing to get back here. I had to see you. I was in that traffic jam. I wasn't moving. And I thought, you know, am I going to get back here in time? And that's how we live our lives. What sort of suggestions do you have, you know, practical suggestions to help <laughs> take us out of this um, stressful sort of um, way of living? Well, let, let's start with the conclusion that I came to, but it isn't just my conclusion. It's a conclusion also from quantum physics. And why I want to bring this up as a quantum physics is, of all the sciences on this planet, quantum physics is the most validated of all sciences. There's no science that has as much truth behind it is quantum physics. I say, so what's fundamental? See, quantum physics is a science that says that our consciousness is creating the world and our place in the world. 
And then all of a sudden, quantum physics says then how you are processing your consciousness is going to determine the world in which you live. So if you are in a stress level, what are your pictures in your mind? What's your perception? Like when you're in the car, it's like, holy crap, I'm not going to get to the meeting on time. And I say, yeah. But then I say, then what picture is that? A picture I'm going to be late. I say, yeah. But if your mind is creating the reality, then you know, focusing on being late will lead you to being late. It's not an accident. Uh, that focusing on uh, like, oh, there's cancer running in my family and I think I can get that cancer. I believe I'm going to get that cancer. The thought images of that person are a picture of themselves with cancer. And then lo and behold, they get the cancer. And it turns out uh, less than 10% of cancer is actually even connected to heredity. That 90% is just the stress level that the person's uh, involved with. And so going to an allopathic physician and getting a diagnosis that you have a particular disease coming or looming in front of you or, oh, you're going to die because everybody in your family dies at this young age. You're going to be one of those two. Uh, these are stress provoking and, and uh, consciousness is so involved. So let's take one step back and go, how is consciousness involved? I go, everyone's familiar with the placebo effect. I say, what's that? I said, that's a, a consciousness associated with healing. In other words, oh, you have a disease. The doctor says, here's the greatest, newest medicine. It's going to be the best thing ever. And you take this medicine and then you get better. And we find out it's a sugar pill. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, the placebo effect is responsible. I go, yeah, but what does it mean? The placebo effect means having a positive thought generated a positive conclusion. What people don't talk about, and this is where the stress level comes in and why it's important, is what about a negative thought? Uh, and we don't talk about it, except science has a name for it. It's called nocebo effect. And I say, what's relevant? Positive thoughts, negative thoughts are equally powerful. <laughs> but one works toward health and the other works toward death. The fear, just having fear can kill you. It's a negative thought. So basically it says, what's stress? Stress is that you are perceiving that something is interfering with your life in a negative way. And whatever image it is, whether you're in the car thinking, I'm not going to get to the meeting on time, that's a stress. I say, yeah, but that's an image. And in quantum physics, that image is what's going to materialize. Okay. And, and so their stresses are images of negative thinking that when in the brain, the brain will take a negative picture and create chemistry that will go into the body to manifest whatever the consciousness is. So quantum physics and epigenetics are both in agreement. It's how you respond to the environment that will determine your biology. So if you're in a stress level, you're not having a placebo effect. Your visual images are not images of, oh, I'm going to be healthy and, oh, I'm going to be happy. All your images are quite negative. And then since this consciousness is related to the unfolding of our universe, if you constantly are having a negative thought, then you are constantly causing your brain to release chemistry that complements that thought. And that chemistry will undermine your health and your life, which is the opposite of the placebo, where a person could be, you know, uh, terminally ill, and then all of a sudden say, oh, this pill can heal me. And they have this visual picture of, oh, when I take this pill, I'm going to get well. And then they manifest it. So what we have to own is our thoughts, positive or negative are controlling our lives, except that the difference is a positive thought takes you to health and a negative thought uh, will create any subluxation you can think of. And Kelly, if I can just, Kelly, I can just come back to when you uh, addressed us, you, you actually Skyped in before me, so you're on time. Yeah, I, I did very well. I pulled up to the car park 
and my phone rang and it was um, the lady from reception saying, Bruce is here, where are you? So, you know, okay. I was there 10 seconds before I really needed to be, so it was all okay. <laughs> so you got there yeah. in the end. Yeah. Uh, I, my own lesson, what I've learned very much is do not look at the clock when you're in the car for a simple reason. You're going to get there whatever time the car gets there. Yes. If you look at the clock, the first thing you're going to do is imagine that I can't get there because time, time. And I say that image alone will manifest the lateness and tardiness. So I've changed my attitude. I don't even look at the clock. Why? I'm in the car. I'm going to get there whenever the hell the car gets there. So I just put it the other way. I'll be there at the right time. And so even if I'm late, guess what? When I've been late, the other people have been late. So all of a sudden, it's, I always show up at the right time. So it's an image of doing that. But uh, don't sit in the car and, and fret because all you're going to do is release stress hormones, and that's going to have a total negative impact on your biology. Now, Bruce, can I ask you a, a coaching question? I'm actually a uh, coach of my son's AFL football team, under-14s, Mighty Sharks at the Park Orchards Footy Club. And I, I was just thinking about our dialogue here about positive and negative thoughts. And in coaching the boys, I throw in some in-between there where I'm very honest with them. So, for instance, when they're doing very well, we always uh, embrace that message saying, well done, boys, well done, boys. Some of the other coaches I've watched around when I'm seeing other coaches, what they do, they when, when the boys aren't doing so well, they still are positive with the boys with the view of saying, well, it's positive, well done, well done, whereas I like to be honest with them so if they're not doing so well we say well look boys we didn't really work hard enough in that quarter we've got to lift we've got to do more here etc etc and i find that motivates them more versus trying to sell them always the positive all the time when it's really not representative of the real situation how does this fit in with all that this is a really important point very important because it depends on the age of the child if the child is under seven you Using the negative approach, like, well, that wasn't good enough and you could do better. Um, a child under seven doesn't go through the whole consciousness. Actually, the child's brain under seven is not even operating at conscious level. It's operating at theta, which is just below consciousness, okay? Theta uh, is uh, a state of hypnosis. So I say, if a child under seven hears, listen, that wasn't good enough. You can do better. Yep. The child just records not good enough. Okay. Okay. That's a, because it's hypnosis. Yep. So the child thinks, oh, I'm not good enough. That's a program. Not good enough. That just went down into the subconscious. When a child is over seven, the uh, consciousness aspect of their brain is working. They're not in theta. They're in a higher vibration called alpha. Alpha is consciousness. I go, what's the difference? And I say, when a child is consciousness, they can understand what you mean when you say not good enough. They can understand, oh, my performance just now wasn't as good as I could have done it, and I can do it better, so I'm going to try harder. It's like you know, putting a little needle there saying, you can do better. And I, the difference is this. If the child's conscious, they understand exactly what you're talking about. It's not as negative. But if the child is under seven, you know, for smaller kids, and you say not good enough, all they're recording is not good enough. I am not good enough. And, and the issue is when parents act as coaches, to kids and use that stimulus like needle them you can do better that you know who do you think you are you don't deserve this um a child over seven can understand really what they're talking about yep. a child under under seven just records it and this is why we have the biggest problem in this world in this regard 
I'm involved with belief change uh, modalities, and we we test people's beliefs. And uh, one of the first beliefs that we test for is I love myself. Here's a very important fact: between eighty to ninety percent of every group of people testing for I love myself, eighty to ninety percent will not test positive for that. Mm. And I say, well, why not? And the answer is because their subconscious programs are so filled with those critical parent things that their subconscious, again, has just recorded all the not good enough, who do you think you are, you're not yep. that good, you don't deserve this, blah, blah, blah. And, and why is it relevant? Because when we do muscle testing, we're really testing what are the beliefs in the subconscious? Because they're the ones that those beliefs run your life about 95% of the time. So a child who grew up with criticism yep. will be self-critical. Yep. I'm not good enough. I, I'm, I'm not deserving. And I go, well, that becomes a real important problem because uh, the life we manifest comes from the programs. If yep. I have a belief I'm not good enough, then the program means that whatever I do, if I, if I do really well, that would be uh, antagonistic to my program. Yep. Uh, so the subconscious mind will make sure that your reality matches your program. If my program is not good enough, then my behavior will manifest the response that people say, yep, that's not good enough. And so that means that my rea my reality and my program are, are you know, on the same plane. <laughs> so the function of the mind is to take your program and make it into reality. If a child is criticized under seven, then the critical nature of that program will be self-criticism which is why people have no love for themselves. And that is one of the biggest problems. If you don't love yourself, uh, think about the logic. How can anybody else love you? you know, what I mean by that is someone says, I love you, and then your mind going, I'm not lovable. Then you have to look at that person who said, I love you, and go, well, you know, you, you don't have quality control because I can see I'm not lovable. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and, and we will deny love. And this is one of the biggest problems on the planet is that most people, 80, 90% of the average group, uh, will not be, I love myself, and I say, why? Because it was the critical nature of parents acting as coaches to a child under seven, which is different than when a child is over seven, because then when consciousness kicks in, they can extrapolate the meaning yes. of what you just said, and a child under seven just records what you just said. Well, it's interesting, because with football, we... we from up to the age of 12, which is really in the age where they go from primary school to high school in Australia, we have them really, it's participation and friendship up to that stage. And then we, then we grade the kids based on general skills. So then we start to move the kids into different groups, really from 13. So that right. then, so then they're, you know, so, so intellectually, they're obviously a bit more developed. Um, mind that's, you, that's an important part, Paul. Let me just say, just yeah, interrupt. Go for it. That's sure. an important part because, as I said, when a child's under seven, they're operating below consciousness, EEG, electroencephalograph, yes. yep. uh, vibrations called theta. The next higher vibration is called alpha. That's calm consciousness. But as you just said, there's another elevation of brain function between 12 and 13 when they go from alpha to the much more higher focus consciousness called beta. So it's interesting because, as you just said, when a child is in the 12 to 13 range, all of a sudden they're at another level of consciousness, uh, which is meaning that you can deal with them at that higher level like you do. But when they're under that 12, uh, that, that differential that you're trying to engage with after 12, that doesn't work under 12. Okay. Now, before you mentioned, you know, a lot of us have these negative self-beliefs and, and that has a big 
impact on our reality, basically. How do we go about changing these self-beliefs then? Oh, okay, well, how many hours do we have on the podcast? That's Actually, exactly. let, let me let me just let, let's put this down. Uh, if I can try and summarize it very quickly, and that is this: um, there's a subconscious mind and a conscious mind. The two are not the same. And when we say the mind, people think they're both the same. And I go, no, they they function completely differently, and more importantly, they learn in different ways. So the subconscious mind learns differently than the conscious mind. Conscious mind is creative. Conscious mind can learn from reading a book, listening to this um, this iPod, uh, you know, this this uh, podcast. Uh, you could go to a lecture. Uh, you could just go, aha! And the conscious mind, being creative, can download this information. Subconscious mind is uh, does not learn that way. Subconscious mind learns, as we said in the first seven years, uh, theta brain function is hypnosis. So. Uh, a hypnosis state, the mind just recording like a video recorder, whatever is happening, boom, downloaded in subconscious. But that changes at age uh, seven. After age seven, the subconscious mind learns by habituation. That's why you do practice. That's why uh, kids repeat. You want to learn the alphabet, A, B, C to Z. How many times do you have to go A, B, C, get to a certain point? Oh, yeah, i got to remember the next couple letters. Then you start over again, A, B, C, and then you advance again. Then you get stuck and you say, oh, i got a couple more letters to learn. And I say you keep repeating it and repeating it, and finally you get the Z. And once you get the Z, guess what? Now you've repeated so frequently, uh, it's now a permanent part of your memory. So practice uh, uh, repetition after age seven is how, how you change it. Uh, one of the biggest problems is people think the two minds are connected so that the conscious mind observing their own behavior, I look at my behavior and go, oh boy, Bruce, I was so stupid. Now I talk to myself, come on, Bruce, you know, you could do better than that. And I get angry with myself, you know, like the coach. Now I'm the coach of my subconscious. <laughs> come on, do better, do better. And, and, and it's frustrating. You know why? It doesn't work. I say, well, why not? And the answer is, you are an entity in the conscious mind. So, yes, our identity, our uniqueness, our spirituality is our conscious mind. That's where we reside. And I say, yeah, and what about the conscious, and subconscious? I go, that's a record playback device. It's a machine. Nobody's in there. So I say, so how much talking you try to tell the subconscious? Listen, subconscious, I don't like this behavior. Do a different behavior. I go, there's nobody in there. <laughs> so there's nobody listening, which means that's a waste of time. And frustrating because after going through all that, you're still going to do the same behavior. So if you want to change subconscious, you have to do it the way the subconscious learns, which is either through hypnosis or through repetition of a new behavior, practice and practice and practice, and then it learns it. And then uh, most exciting is there are a bunch of new modalities to reprogram the subconscious. They're classified as energy psychology. And they engage, although there are all variety of ways of doing it, they engage super learning. And then that super learning process, uh, you can change a subconscious program within 10 minutes. So a program you've had 50 years in your life that's been sabotaging you, 10 minutes of a energy psychology modality can rewrite that program. Uh, and so this is really necessary because, as you can see, the world's going through a, a great upheaval at this moment and it's due to human behavior meaning we have to change our behavior very quickly. So energy psychology modalities, 20 or 30 or so, uh, and people can look on my website, which is simply brucelipton.com. Under resources, I have belief change modalities. And so there's three ways to change subconscious. A, uh, hypnosis. Yep. And people uh, 
Uh, you can do auto hypnosis when you go to bed at night, put earphones on uh, with a program playing. And I say, because the moment your conscious mind goes into sleep mode, which conscious is alpha, when it shuts down, the next level is theta. So before you go into deep sleep, there's a period where when your conscious is just checking out, theta is in operation, but theta is the hypnosis phase. So as you put the earphones on, as soon as your conscious mind checks out going to sleep, the subconscious is open for download. So that's why people use what are called subliminal programs. You put them on, your conscious mind sleeping doesn't even hear the program. It's not relevant to the conscious mind, but it is to the subconscious mind. So um, that's the subliminal programming, or I said habituation, and the joke part about that is people talk about saying, fake it till you make it, meaning I'm not a happy person. I say, well, then fake that you're happy every day. Just keep telling yourself, I'm a happy person. I'm a happy person. I'm happy. And repetition will get to a point where you don't have to say that every day. The subconscious mind will say, I'm a happy person. So you don't, it will always then stay in happy because it's not a conscious uh, up or down. It's subconscious uh, program. It just plays the same all the time. It's really just what you're saying. And if I, if I take this to another layer and think of, the effects on, say, behavior epigenetics uh, in, in the sense of maybe pain or pleasure. And I go back to thinking, what was on the news last night? So the frontline news was a murder, I think, was the first story. Then the next one was a criminal activity, number two. Third one, I think there was talking about a natural disaster. So we have all these subliminal external messages that the brain gets infiltrated into. And I think I, I remember reading somewhere in the US, they actually tried a positive news service. So a news service that talked all about positivity, you know, fantastic yep. achievements here, this was fantastic, etc. And it didn't write, right? It didn't write at all. So they canned and went back to the conventional doom and gloom news, news service. There's something very weird about humans in this regard. And, yes. Uh, you can see it on the highway. Uh, if there's an accident on one side of the highway, you could see the people they call rubbernecking. Uh, on the other side of the highway, will slow down to a stop to stare at the bad thing that happened. It, it, it's so like, <gasps> captures your attention. Well, that, that that's almost a, uh, a part of our, our life in the sense that scary things are supposed to get us ready for protection. So we're sensitive to scary things more than we are to positive things, which means everything's okay. But when it's something scary, it gets you, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ex you know, nervous about it. So if you want to stimulate people, you give them scary things because uh, it, it's automatically designed. If something's scary, you've got to pay attention. If something is not scary, it's like, eh, it's okay. You don't have to pay attention to it. So the scary uh, items uh, capture more public attention than the positive good items, only because we are programmed to look for scary because our lives depend on noticing what is threatening. You don't always look out and say, oh, that's the most positive thing in the world, let me go toward it. Because if you had a positive thing and a negative thing next to each other, your focus is gonna be on the negative one because that's the one that's threatening. So uh, there is a, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the situation is the public will, easily gravitate toward the negative news but the positive news is like yeah so okay nice so continue to that point though that when you said about uh self-esteem and how most people 90 percent of people i think you said that don't actually think they, they love themselves for instance 
I mean, just in this podcast, we've raised two big issues, you know, parenting where inappropriately at under seven-year-olds and, and sort of building a tone of subconscious negativity. And then when those kids who've had that perhaps then grow up into the world and then they flick on TV and they get all negative, they hear that the only TV shows that are serial shows are criminal shows. They're sort of in, suddenly their environment, their epigenetics is copying a lot of loading of, uh, I suppose, stuff that's not really nourishing. And you can see perhaps why this predilects them to become negative people, I suppose, versus then sort of starting to work through all that to become someone who's fulfilling and happy and can rate their lives as a great day and it's a bad day sort of scenario. Is, does that all gel? I suppose it does for you, from your perspective. But is, well, we have to also put it this way. So we have the two different minds are separate entities and the conscious mind is the one connected to your identity, your spirituality, the creative mind. And the creative mind, by definition, has your wishes and desires because wishes and desires are creative thinking. This is what I would like to have. I don't have it, but this is what I would like to have. So creative wishes and desires are come from the conscious mind. Recent research reveals, well, how much of the day are we operating from the creative conscious mind uh, versus how much of the day are we operating from the subconscious programs? And it turns out, and this is the, the, the vital statistic that's so important, because thinking takes our conscious mind away from paying attention, basically, uh, hey, so, uh, Paul, what are you doing next Thursday at 5 o'clock? If I ask you that question, where the heck is the answer? It's not outside in front of you if you don't have the calendar. It's inside your head. So the moment you are thinking, by definition, your conscious mind is going inwards to look for some data. Uh, yeah, but if the conscious mind's going inwards, then by definition, it's not paying attention to what's going on in the world at that moment. And this is where the subconscious kicks in. It's the autopilot. So if you're walking down the street and you have a thought, just because your conscious mind is thinking, it's not paying attention, doesn't mean you just stop, stand still until the thought's finished and then start with conscious paying attention again to walking. It says you have a thought, you continue walking. I say, oh, but who's making sure you don't walk off the sidewalk or walk into a tree? I go, because the walking is now controlled by the autopilot subconscious, which is a million times more powerful a computer than the conscious mind, much more capable of handling. So the simple fact is this. Science has recognized that 95% of the day our behavior is controlled by subconscious programs because 95% of the day is the time the conscious mind spent thinking, okay? Which means then you're not operating from your wishes and desires 95% of the day. You're operating from the programs that you got in the first seven years. And all of a sudden, this is why it irritates the hell out of me. The Jesuits have had a saying for 400 years. Give me a child until it's seven and I will show you the man. That, that's their statement. I go, what does it mean? It says, well, what it really means is this. For 400 years, they knew if I can get the education for the first seven years, I control the outcome of that person's life. Why? Because the first seven years is downloading programs in the subconscious and the rest of the life, 95% of that life is coming from the programs of the subconscious. So whoever programs your first seven years, determines the rest of your life at that point. So big hint there to parents, uh, you know, look after your kids when they're young. And be good and nice and give them all the positive things. You have to give them all positive things that, oh, you're great, you know, and, and, and that encourages them because then their subconscious will, will say, I'm great. And I say, well, why is it relevant? Because any behavior they do, the subconscious is going to shape the character of it. And the subconscious says, I'm great then remember the mind's function is to take the program and make it real 
if I believe I'm great, then the subconscious program is going to have to prove that I am. And my life will then be a complement to my subconscious program. Now, Bruce, I've always thought of you as a, a visionary sort of person. What do you think the next big thing is going to be in science? <laughs> well, uh, I guess the big thing in science is not really in science as much as it is in the public. The idea is because the public lives off of what science says. Because in our Western civilization, our truth provider is science, meaning you have a question about life. Uh, they used to go to the church. They, they used to go see the guy in the black coat, you know, for truth. And in today's world, we go see the guy in the white coat, the scientist, you know, is it true? And I say, well, why is it relevant? Because uh, until the public understands what science understands, they're locked with an old belief system. And it, it takes nothing more to make the beautiful life that we want than to get rid of the disempowering beliefs that all of us have been programmed with. Because if we've been you know, programmed with disempowerment, then our life is an expression of disempowerment. And, and once you understand that your program is creating, then all of us have an opportunity to rewrite the program. All of us can change our lives. Uh, and that's where, so the revolution is not the revolution in science, it's the revolution in the public understanding the nature of the new science. Fantastic. And I suppose on the flip side, what's the biggest science myth you've come across? You know? The biggest science myth? Yeah. Oh, that we're victims. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> that, that, you yeah. Know, yeah. That's the whole thing. It's like, I mean, if there's any problem in the world is that we do not believe how powerful we are. And say, how powerful are we? Well, people say, look, you can walk across hot coals, but that's based on your belief system. You cannot walk across the hot coals if you believe you're going to get burned because the moment you, you believe you're going to get burned, you get burned because it's based on belief. Uh, and that's why a, a person who's walking across the hot coals is going to do okay unless they have a moment of doubt. Yes. The moment, can I really do this? Boom. The moment they say that, is that's when they get burned because it's like, oh, I guess I can't. Uh, and then just to enhance that a little further, in the South and the U.S., we have religious uh, uh, fundamentalists that work themselves up into a state of religious ecstasy and they speak tongues. Uh, they play with poisonous snakes, vipers, uh, 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 with the fact that they call it testifying, meaning they want to show how powerful God is. So their belief in God is so powerful that they say, look, I believe in God. God will protect me, no doubt. So I'm going to play with these poisonous snakes. And guess what? Even if they get bitten, generally there's no problem with a sidebar. Uh, two months ago, one of these snake handlers died. <laughs> so occasionally it happens. And that's not what I'm talking about. But the one I really wanted to bring up is this. Um, some of them drink strychnine poison to testify that God protects them. And the fact is they drink strychnine in toxic doses and have no adverse effect from drinking toxic poison. Why? Their consciousness is 100 uh, percent in belief that I am protected. OK, and it's like you got to have full consciousness to do that. I, I, I mean, I, knowing that my consciousness can protect me, I still don't have enough strong consciousness to drink strychnine, yeah. even no, no, knowing no. that. I don't think I'm taking on the strychnine no, challenge myself, Bruce. No. I'll let them do it, but the point about it was what? You can walk across hot coals, you, you can drink strychnine poison, and this is how powerful we are. It doesn't affect us. Or uh, one that I also use in my lecture is uh, I show a picture of a weightlifter lifting up a car, muscles bulging, sweating, get your lifting up the car. And then I show a whole series of articles from newspapers around the world uh, about women yeah. lifting up a car when a child is caught underneath yeah, it. That's right. And it's like, 
How the hell did that happen? They're not even athletic. And here's this bulging muscle person perspiring, lifting up a car, and a woman, because her belief system is unshakable, why? Her kid's under the car? Don't tell her she can't lift up the car. She, in her mind, and guess what she can do? She can lift up the car. So it just shows how powerful our beliefs are, but you have to have, uh, you know, no in interference with that belief. It's 100% belief. It can't be 99% in belief. It's got to be 100% in belief. All or nothing. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And Keller, you know, we, Keller, we, we better advocate that our back chat listeners don't drink the poison nor do the uh, the uh, hot coal thing in the short term, maybe. We better advocate yeah, that. Yeah, let's not do that. Um <laughs> Now, I think we just about need to, to wrap up. Paul, Bruce has got to um, get going. Yes, but sure. I have teaching, which is fun. Yeah. I'm teaching chiropractic students. Oh, all right. Fantastic. Just before we go, though, we know, Bruce, on Backchat, that um, we all know there's inspirational experiences in our lives, and you know, I think our listeners can draw a lot from that. So have you got an inspirational experience you can share with the Backchat? Well, I, I do, especially in the, in the subject of chiropractic, because I was a professor in a medical school, allopathic community, and I was teaching in the Caribbean and uh, being foolish, uh, riding my motorcycle uh, in the back roads of this country. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, he said, you know, there's really no police. There's no speed limit. And stuff like all of a sudden this freedom said, you can go as fast as you want. So I accelerated and then came to a right hand corner. And I was going so fast that the bike went straight off the road, turned upside down, landed on my head uh, with the bike. They found me, uh, they took me to, to the medical school where the doctors, there were doctors there. All my colleagues were around me. They thought that, you know, I was uh, uh, unconscious for more than a half an hour. They thought I was, you know, I was going to die or something. I come out of this consciousness, uh, unconsciousness, uh, and uh, I start to, you know, become more capable. I start to stand, I can't stand up. Every bone in my body, everything's aching like crazy. I'm hunched over like Quasimodo. And... I have all these medical doctors around me. And it's like, okay, what can you do? And they said, here, here's some pain pills. <laughs> it was like, oh, pain pills. You know, I thought, oh, okay, that's all I can do. And because I was in the, in the medical school, there was a student who got to me and said, listen, my roommate in the dorm, he's a chiropractor. And I said, chiropractor? I don't know anything about chiropractic. He said, go see him. So I thought, what the hell? I got nothing but a handful of pain pills and I'm walking like Quasimodo. I said, sure, I'll try anything. And I go to this chiropractic student's uh, dorm room. And uh, uh, as I was, you know, I, first thing was, like, you know, give me something about chiropractic. Give me, give me something positive. You know, give me something I can feel about it. And so he, he was doing some of Goodhart's uh, kinesiology. That was the biggest wake-up call of my whole life because he said, okay, say your name, and I say Bruce, and, and then he did the muscle test, and I'm strong, and then he says, okay, say uh, that you're a woman, like, okay, I'm Carol, and then he pushed, and my arm went down. I said, oh, wait, 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 I wasn't ready, you know? I said, do it again, and then I said, my name is Carol, and he pushed, and it went weak again, and on the third time, it kept going weak, and I went, holy crap, what does it mean? It means that my conscious mind wanted to keep my arm straight, and it wasn't in power. There was another power greater than my conscious mind because my conscious mind couldn't do it. And it turns out, recognizing, oh, my God, the power of the subconscious, the power of the educated mind was so powerful. It overrode that. And then, of course, the best part was I got on his table after I was, like, blown away by this kinesiology. He did the adjustment, and I walked out of there standing up. And I looked at the pills in my hand. I thought, 
how stupid my colleagues, if they think that these pills were going to help me versus the adjustment, my first chiropractic adjustment and walking up, I thought, okay, that's all the information I needed. I'm a fan mm -hmm. and have been ever since. And what year was that, Bruce? What year? Uh, I'd say that was about '86. Uh, okay, mid '80s, fantastic. Now, now, Bruce, we finish each podcast with three take-home messages for our audience, our back chat audience. What three points would you like to share for take-home messages for our back chat listeners? Uh, number one, to recognize that um, that your wishes and desires can manifest if you get out of the program. Uh, and uh, I have a book called The Honeymoon Effect, which talks about, look, your life could suck all the way up until the day you meet this wonderful person. And all of a sudden, boom, you're fully in love. And, and I say from 24 hours after meeting this person, well, all of a sudden life is heaven on earth. Everything is beautiful. The job is better. Life is better. Everything's better. I said, look, everything sucked. And then 24 hours ago, you met this person. Today, everything is heaven on earth. And it turns out uh, the reason why that occurs is we now know that that's being mindful. Uh, that science reveals that this is the one time in your life you don't default to subconscious programming, that you stay in the conscious mind, which is creative, wishes and desires. I say the moment you stop playing the program is the moment wishes and desires manifest as heaven on earth, which really reveals you're operating from these negative programs, and that's what's keeping you from having heaven on earth. You can change that. So the idea is uh, changing the uh, uh, who's in control, conscious or subconscious. Being mindful becomes very critical. Number two, that you can rewrite any subconscious belief that you have. You say, how do you know the subconscious beliefs? They were programmed before age seven. They were being programmed when you were in utero. Uh, you were one year old. You were getting all these programs because your brain was just downloading in a state of theta. Uh, and, and I go, okay, I can't tell you what my programs are. Why? I wasn't conscious when the programs were going in. But I can tell you what my programs are from this simple reality. Ninety-five percent of the day you are operating from subconscious programs so your life is a printout of your program so you want to know what your subconscious programs are then it's simple look at your life and here's the way you look at it everything you like that comes into your life comes into your life because you have programs that support that being in your life in contrast anything you struggle over work hard at sweat over you don't have to put a lot of effort in to make it happen why are you working so hard? And the answer, inevitably, that destination is not supported by your program, and that's why you're struggling. So you could just look at your life and say, oh, my God, I have a problem with uh, programs on relationship. I have a program, uh, problem on, uh, on prosperity <laughs> or, or health. Uh, and then using these new modalities that I mentioned, energy psychology, you can then take that awareness and then reprogram the subconscious and change your life in about 10 minutes from doing that. And thirdly, uh, now that I've been in the chiropractic community for so long, the most important thing to recognize is chiropractic philosophy is not just a course in school. Chiropractic philosophy is a way of life. And that if you actually live the philosophy, uh, you change not just your life, but everyone around your life. And this is what I see, for example, when I look at chiropractic, vitalistic chiropractic families how healthy everyone is, how the children are smart and bright and everything and no medical involvement and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so one of the most important things I understand is this, living the philosophy, not talking the philosophy is the big important difference in our world that recognize the meaning of this philosophy because it is the thing that will enhance your epigenetics, enhance every character of your life, 
uh, and therefore, it's not just an academic course that you pass or fail. It, it, it is the whole character of your life. Fantastic. Kelly, what do you think? Well, you know, I always love hanging out with Bruce. Yeah. He's got so many awesome messages to share. Uh, you know, I get something out of it every time that, that we sit down and have a chat. So and with all of this stuff, I'm sure that our back chat listeners are going to get a lot out of today's podcast. Uh, and the messages that Bruce has shared with us. It's it's yeah, it's been very profound, very deep. Thank you so much, Bruce. Really appreciate Paul, it. I want to thank you. I want to actually thank all of the practitioners that are listening because uh, the future of healthcare will move uh, the population from allopaths into chiropractic because it says basically less than one percent of our diseases are genetically uh, controlled. Less than one percent. So that the vast amount of illness on this planet, greater than 90%, is actually uh, not genetics, but is due to lifestyle uh, and our response to the environment and the world around us. And, and this is what's emphasized in chiropractic. So chiropractic is the, the direction out of allopathic uh, without the need of drugs and all that negative kind of stuff. Is start living the philosophy. Thank you, Bruce. And for more information, you can go to Bruce's website, brucelipton.com, which is a fantastic interactive website with free blogs, newsletters, as well as some uh, membership access tools as well. So for more information, go to that website. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward chat forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links for today's podcast will be at our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.